Good morning. We have two sessions left. We have today and next week to wrap up our very quick and broad overview of eschatology. Uh, today we'll remind you of some of the ground that we've covered, uh, cover some more ground, and, and uh, really kind of hone in on uh, some of the things that take place at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So let's go back. The rapture has occurred. You didn't miss it. The rapture has occurred in our study. Uh, the world has been thrust into a tribulation period. Uh, the believers are in heaven. Uh, there's that marriage of the Lamb that takes place. There's the Bema Seat judgment, uh, that divine scrutiny of how we've lived our Christian life. Here on earth, there's been this peace treaty signed. Uh, granting peace and protection to, to the land of Palestine, particularly Israel uh, by name. Uh, there's this uh, quietness that comes over the, the initial stage of that uh, tribulation period. There are 144,000 Jews who, who immediately come to know Christ as Savior and become uh, the, the evangelists of that age, uh, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. They will be joined by two witnesses halfway through the tribulation period. And halfway through the tribulation period, uh, after the treaty has been violated and broken, there will be this abomination that makes desolate, or the abomination of desolation, where beast number two sets up uh, an idol in the temple uh, breaks his arrangement and agreement with Israel, ceases their offering and, and worship, and now directs everybody to worship the first beast or the image of the first beast being a counterfeit Christ. And uh, now we find ourselves in the second half of the tribulation period, that day of great judgment, the great day of the Lord, the last three and one half years where we begin to see the rapid unfolding over the period of time of the, the rest of uh, the remainder of the judgments of God. So we have looked at the seal judgments, and we ended last week with the seventh seal that indicated that there were silence in heaven for the space of one half hour. A truly intimidating, overwhelming context that everything stopped as the wrath of God would be poured out on the inhabitants of the tribulation period in such extreme ways in that last three and a half years. Again, it reminds me that God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to eternal life. We know that's not His divine plan, and uh, there is a penalty for sin, and there's a silence in heaven. So, as we pick it up, we're going to to, to look at these trumpet judgments that follow this silence, and those trumpet judgments fi followed by the bowl or the vile judgments that all uh, end up or arrive us at the second coming of Jesus Christ to be distinguished from the rapture of the church. When He returns to earth, He defeats his enemies, he establishes a millennial kingdom, and he rules and reigns from the throne in Jerusalem. And there are a number of things connected to that that we want to spend some time with. Uh, next week, we will wrap up with 
the book of the Revelation and the final estate, if you would, of the unredeemed, the final estate of the redeemed, the great white throne judgment, and ultimately the new heaven and the new earth. The tribulation period as a time of terrible judgment, the millennial kingdom as a time of blessing, but it is not a new heaven and a new earth. That is at the end, that is eternity as we know it, and we'll get to that place next week and wrap it up by John saying, this is what all this means, all right? This is why this matters, and he calls us to a place of obedience and preparedness for the things that must soon come to pass. Okay. Father, I pray as we switch gears that you'd give us some some clarity, some understanding, even in very difficult texts to understand, I pray that we would be able to steer away from unnecessary speculation as to the events that unfold. I pray that as we steer away from the unnecessary expectation that again we would have an overwhelming response to the perfect holiness of God and the absolute wretchedness of man exhibited in full force, particularly in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period and the conflict that began in in Genesis chapter 3, finally coming to its full extent just prior to the new heaven and the new earth. And as all creation groans, as cultures groan, as the world continues to exist under the weight of sin, there's hope and promise. Remind us that was secured to us through the suffering of Your Son. We pray that You would just give us a mind to hear and understand. But I also pray, Father, not just to understand. May the motivations that we addressed at the beginning of our time together be very real. May it incite a holy living in Your people. And give us a deeper appreciation for the consequence of sin and the souls of men and women around us. And may it create a longing for that better day, the completion of our salvation, the glorious removal of sin finally and forever in our lives as a result of the suffering of Christ. Encourage us to be changed from the inside out beyond just our minds and the satisfaction of our curiosity. Speak through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the second coming of Jesus Christ and as we have looked at the sealed judgments, we close with the seventh seal and the silence and the space of heaven or in heaven for the space of one half hour. And after that silence is broken, we pick up the narrative in Revelation chapter 8 for the seven trumpet judgments. Again, there is an idea that these are successive judgments. Some would teach that these are kind of intermingled. I'm not really sure whether your position matters in the greater scope of it, but we will begin to see how ugly and defiling sin is to a holy and righteous God, we will begin to get a glimpse of the consequence of sin in ways that perhaps our minds have never let us get a glimpse of the consequence of sin. In verse 7 of chapter 8 of the book of the Revelation, we read, the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. 
and these were thrown down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the grass was burned up. Remember, we're going to try and take this literally, if it can be perceived literally, rather than allegorically. So, what is he really saying? Well, we're just going to accept the fact that as a part of this judgment in this first trumpet, one-third of all of the earth is going to fall under divine judgment and condemnation with hail and fire coming from heaven. And that notion of blood causes us to think, where does that come from? But if you picture a literal fulfillment of this as this giant hail rains from heaven and fire from heaven, anyone caught out in the open would be struck down, and it would create this blood to such a degree that a third of all of the earth is impacted, perhaps even the population at that point in time. There's a fierceness to the righteousness and anger of Almighty God that the book of the Revelation lays bare, and it's rooted in His holiness and some of the things that we spoke of this morning. But in this first trumpet judgment, one-third of all of the earth that's judged by a judgment of hail and fire and blood. Verse 8, and the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. This second trumpet judgment is not a judgment on the earth, but on the sea. Is he talking about Gentiles and and uh, the Jewish nation, as he talked uh, in, in chapter 13 about uh, those different uh, areas representing, I, I think he's talking in essence about general judgment and a third of the sea. Perhaps we could say that this judgment centered in or focused on the land of Palestine, but the tremor effects uh, continue throughout the whole world as we know it. This mountain thrown into the midst of the sea has been suggested to be a meteorite of some sort that because of its radiation would poison the waters of the world and, and a third of the, of, of the sea creatures and uh, a, a third of, of, of the boats uh, will be destroyed. Uh, some would say, well, perhaps this simply means that a third of of unbelieving Jews and a third of unbelieving Gentiles in these first trumpet judgments. We do not know, but either way, it's a terrible tragedy. We're one-third of the sea and one-third of the earth are consumed with the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Verse 10, and a third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch, and it fell upon a third of the rivers and on the springs of the waters, it reminds me much of, of some of the plagues in Egypt. If you go back and compare that time where, where the, the waters were tainted with blood and etc. But nonetheless, and the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. This, again, fire from heaven, this star is this is this allegoric language? Is it talking about a person? Is it, is it a judgment of sorts, a, a literal contamination, not of the sea, but of all freshwater sources? I would look at it as being a third of all freshwater being contaminated by this thing called wormwood. We can get wrapped up into some debate and speculation for all of these judgments that would consume our time, but it would take our attention away from its reality. 
A picture is being painted in the vision that John receives of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God that juxtaposes His perfect holiness against the ugly rampantness of sin. Remember, the hindrance of the church has been taken away. Satan and, and, and some of his hordes have been released, and they're wreaking havoc on this earth. And it's showing us the terrible consequence of sin and unrighteousness. In chapter 8, verse 12, when the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and the third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, 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 to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. It increases in intensity. If we were to look at chapter 9, verse 1, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose like the smoke of a giant furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth, and they were told not to harm the grass the earth or any green plant or any green tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That's just loaded with both literal language and potential imagery. I believe it's a demonic host of sorts that is released that brings judgment on behalf of beast number two to take the lives in martyrdom of those who have not received the mark of the beast and the number of the mark being 666 that we read about in Revelation chapter 13. They will be killed by beast number two, particularly through uh, this demonic horde of beings that are released to the four corners of the earth. And it's a, a demonic torture and probably martyrdom of many of those who did not receive the mark but professed faith. Verse 13, and the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. We find an interesting uh, terms that are used here. So the four angels who had been prepared for that hour and that day and month and year were released to kill a third of all mankind. It seems to indicate that there were angelic beings maintaining some kind of um, peace, n not like the beginning of the tribulation period, but, but keeping some kind of um, vigil over the land of Palestine, even in the midst of growing unrest, particularly militarily and otherwise. And uh, this can reveal some of uh, Daniel's prophecies in chapter 10 when he talks about the armies of beast number one and beast number two, the armies of the north, the armies of the south, and then, of course, the armies of the east. And this is really interesting. So, as, as, as these horsemen are released, it seems perhaps feasible that there's a military conflict that takes place 
that destroys a third of all mankind. And the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And I heard their number. It's really kind of interesting. It is an army of 200 million soldiers. Interestingly enough, a generation ago, the armies of the east, and he's going to talk about the armies of the east, uh, the armies of China reached that plateau, that they are 200 million strong. And perhaps he's talking about all of the armies of the world gathering in the land of Palestine and the valley of Megiddo for the great battle of Armageddon, which is a battle between uh, good and evil that began in Genesis chapter 3, and Jesus will conduct by the word that comes out of His mouth and the sword that comes out of His mouth that consumes the armies gathered. Again, we don't know that, but it uh, seems interesting to, to put the pieces together. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, uh, the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came from their mouths. But these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths, for the power of the horses in their mouth and in their tails, and their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. And the rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues, who were not killed by these plagues, listen to this, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear talk. They did not repent of their numbers or or their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They have acknowledged the, 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 the wrath of God. They have seen the calamity around them. They are so captured in their depravity of sin that they refuse to acknowledge God in the ugliness of their sin. Do you begin to get a picture of how drastically the holiness of God, when compared to the unrighteousness of man, there's this great gulf of of destruction in between? I fear that even in the church, we don't take sin seriously enough, sometimes not even in our own lives. And this is a picture of the wrath of God for sin being poured out as a third the inhabitants of these, these horsemen or these armies are killed. And probably what, what, what I perceive to be a military conflict. Now, remember what Daniel says, there are tidings out of the south, The Arab armies are marching toward the land of Palestine, where the second beast, the Antichrist, who is empowered or causing worship to the first beast, the military political dictator, are are residing. As these armies of the south march on Jerusalem, we hear that there's, there's noise that the armies of the north are descending upon Palestine, and now it is introduced to us that there are and armies are coming out of the east, 200 million men. It's going to teach us in the next couple of judgments that the river Euphrates dries up and they come in from the east side of Palestine. And all of these armies are descending upon this land of Palestine and uh, preparing, in my estimation at least, uh, for the second coming of Jesus Christ and that cosmic battle of good and evil. Um, coming to a crescendo. If you go to chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, verse 15, and the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world 
has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and forever. The kingdom of the Lord, and this, this seventh trumpet that is blown, uh, the king is coming. The battle of Armageddon is going to take place. The armies of the world will be destroyed, and it seems like we have rapidly approached the completion of that three and a half years and the establishment of the millennial kingdom that brings us to the bowl or vile judgments explained or written about by John in chapter 16 of the book of Revelation. Chapter 16, verse 1, and I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. Whereas some of the prior judgments were particularly on those who did not receive the mark of the beast, these judgments are in particular to those who stood in defiance of God who refused to leave their idolatry and murderous ways, who refused to change and acknowledge Him as God, there is a pointed judgment now coming for these unbelieving beast worshipers, or they will be inflicted with sores all over their bodies uh, if they bore the mark of the beast. Uh, verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of the corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Do you see how this has reached a crescendo? It's no longer one-third. Now there's a destruction of everything that is in the sea. There will be no more uh, sustenance coming from that sea, no more sustaining ability for the culture at large. It seems to be building to the end, as we know it, of that particular age of that seven-year tribulation period. And the third angel, verse 4, poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Verse 8, and the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him evil. Apparently, they acknowledged that God had power over this, but they cursed him rather than repented from it. Can you ever really doubt the corrupting influence and power of sin when even exposed to the fierceness of the anger of Almighty God and even given some understanding that God is behind this judgment, rather than repent, curse God. Unbelievable. Just, just unbelievable. But they're sealed in their fate. They are now being scorched by the sun. Verse 10 of chapter 16 reminds us that even in the celestial atmosphere, there's an intensity of those those trumpet judgments as the kingdom is plunged into darkness. And I believe that is literal, but I believe that it is literal because of the figurative reality. Sin has so dominated, they have cursed God. There's a darkness over the land, both by sight and by way of sin. In preparation for the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, poured out, poured out in these final 
judgments. Verse 12, and the sixth angel poured his bowl out in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare a way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings, the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief in reference to the gospel of Matthew in the, in the Olivet Discourse. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And he assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. All factions of the world represented in these four military powers from the four corners of the earth, now camped and encamped around Palestine and this valley of Megiddo or Armageddon for the seventh bowl judgment. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings Heels of thunder and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. And so great was that earthquake. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Even in the end, they remained in their ultimate depravity and sinful defiance. It is a chilling account of God's fierceness and wrath and anger being poured out for sin and all of its consequences. And the power of sin in death is so great outside of divine intervention that they are not repenting of the evil, even though they plainly interpret what is taking place, but standing in defiance of God in preparation for what I believe happens in Revelation chapter 19 and the rider on the white horse, Jesus Christ Himself, coming into the valley of Megiddo to destroy the nations of the earth and to establish His millennial kingdom. And there are several other things that take place in this transition period between the second coming and the millennial kingdom, this thousand-year reign of Christ. So we have the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments and, and now find ourselves at the battle of Armageddon and the culmination of the rebellion of man against a holy and righteous God. Now, if you go back and look at Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, they were worried that somehow they had missed the return of Christ, and they were living in the day of judgment because of some of the persecutions that they were going through. And Paul writes to encourage them about the Word of the Lord and their salvation in Christ, and, and he reminds them about the suffering servant, uh, the atoning work of Christ, and, and, and waiting for this Christ who was raised from the dead to deliver them from the wrath that is to come. He reminds them that is the kind of wrath that you are not going to experience. 
You have been rescued through the suffering of the servant of Jesus Christ. That, that, that's not for you. He draws that parallel and distinction. In chapter 2 of the book of Thessalonica, or chapter 1, uh, verse, or chapter 5 of, of the, the letter to Thessalonica, he's talking about while people say, verse 3, there's peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Remember, this whole tribulation begins with a time of peace and prosperity and promise, and unravels now seven years later in this great judgment. He said, don't let it surprise you like a thief. He reminds them again that they're spared from that wrath that is to come, that they need to put on that helmet of salvation to arm themselves, for God has not destined us, verse 9, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. So encourage one another and build one another up. You are not, you are not you are not, because of the blood of your Savior Jesus Christ, going to be under that divine judgment. You are spared from the wrath that is to come. That's an important message today. You say, could it get any worse? Did you not listen as we read that passage? Yeah, it's bad. Oh boy, is it going to get worse. We are spared from the wrath that is to come. Look at chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, beginning at verse 11 as it describes for us the event that takes place in the last bold judgment. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war in this valley of Megiddo. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Can there be any doubt as to who the rider on the white horse is? This is the Son of the living God. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ, descending from heaven. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That may be us, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We may be accompanied by the martyred saints who are clothed in white, surrounding the throne, calling for the vengeance of God. And by the way, He is not bringing us because He is not capable of overcoming evil. He's bringing us so that we might see finally and forever He won. He won. And here's what the Scriptures teach us. From his mouth comes a sharp sword for which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he had a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and all the flesh of men, both free and slave and small and great. As this battle of Armageddon unfolds, the death and destruction are overwhelming. The Bible teaches that blood will flow as high as a horse's bridle through the valley of Megiddo. God has prepared beasts of this earth to eat the flesh that lays rotting in this valley after the glorious victory 
of our Savior. Verse 19, and I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who would receive the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. You know what he's talking about, right? Revelation chapter 13, the two beasts that we told you about. Those guys are singled out in particular for judgment at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the beast and the false prophet from Revelation chapter 13 are both judged at this particular time of the second coming. And these two were thrown alive into a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. There is no military, political dictator or ruler that can stand up to the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. There's no economic religious ruler, beast number two, that can stand up to the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. And there is always a consequence for sin. And yes, because of the suffering of our Savior, He wins. He wins. And now this time of tribulation comes to its culmination. We are introduced to this period called the millennial kingdom. Now, there's a passage of Scripture. We don't have time to to really delve into it extensively. But at the time of this second coming, there's also a judgment of the nations that takes place. We can read about it in Matthew 24 and 25. And the judgment of the nations is really a judgment of who gets to move from the tribulation period into the millennial kingdom. Now, we understand from Scripture that no unrighteous survive this final battle and God's ultimate judgment. So He is, in essence, separating unbelievers who are destroyed and killed at the valley, uh, valley of Megiddo, and any of these tribulation saints who survived the tribulation and still have their natural bodies, they're, they're sorted out, and they are given entrance into the kingdom. Now, that's a really important point when we get into talking about the kingdom. So, I'll just make it now, and we'll connect the dots later. So, there are people just like us who have come to faith in the tribulation. They did not receive the mark. They survived this glorious yet gory battle of Armageddon, and because they are sealed with the blood of the Lamb, they will take their natural bodies and be ushered in. They will be inhabitants of that kingdom, all right? their natural bodies still possess that sin that we talked about this morning in our morning worship. So, they will carry that into this millennial kingdom, their natural sinful flesh, and uh, we'll understand the implications of that uh, potentially before we're done this morning, maybe not. So, in this judgment of the nations, um, it is introduced uh, particularly in Matthew 25 is the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. And uh, it is a judgment of those who have remained faithful, didn't take the mark of the beast, or those who, who uh, somehow uh, squandered uh, their promises. I, I believe that probably the judgment of the nations is a judgment both of unrepentant uh, Israel, Jews, 
and, and unrepentant Gentiles. Uh, again, let's just sort it out. Unrighteous cannot go into the kingdom. They are immediately judged. They will be destroyed in this final battle. It is the righteous and only the righteous who will be allowed to enter into this kingdom, and their righteousness comes from the same place ours came from. They're clothed with the righteousness of the Lamb through His suffering, all right? They were saved, or salvation came through the gospel of the kingdom, but the gospel of the kingdom was still rooted in the suffering servant Jesus, His atoning work. So some get in, the rest are destroyed in this judgment of the nation, and some are cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And according to Matthew 25, some who are on his right, he says, come, you are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And for the rest, he said, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire for his devils, prepared for his devils and his angels. It is a final judgment of redeemed and unredeemed. So now we are entering into a period of time that the Scriptures deal with as the millennial kingdom, meaning a thousand years. I believe it's a literal thousand years. That thousand years is no longer a time of judgment and fierceness of wrath, but a fulfillment of all the promises made to Abraham and God's people through the ages. So the focus is not on the church. The focus is on Israel. Oh, the church is a part of this whole thing. It is a fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises in, in their entirety. God always keeps His promises, and it's the establishment of the kingdom that the prophets in the Old Testament were prophesying about, where the lion will lay down with, with the lamb, and, and the king shall rule and reign, and there's never been a time like that in the history of the world. Well, now is that time. At the end of the battle of Armageddon, after the judgment of the nations, the righteous are, are entered into the kingdom. Uh, the righteous from heaven, who don't any longer have this sin in the flesh, remember they're glorified, they have their glorified resurrected bodies, they're a part of that kingdom, and he shall reign in that kingdom for a thousand years. Look at chapter 20. There's something else that takes place, not just the judgment of the beast and the false prophet, but the binding of the dragon. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, this is important. Remember, there are natural people like you and I who still have sin in their flesh who become inhabitants of the kingdom. But the spiritual warfare that they experienced because of Satan's looseness, this prince and power of the air, will not even be close to the spiritual warfare that you and I experience today because Satan is going to be chained in a bottomless pit bound for that thousand years so that righteousness might prevail. But it doesn't eliminate that some of these people still had their earthly bodies tainted by sin. They're still tainted by sin. So follow that. So he, he binds Satan for this thousand-year millennial kingdom, threw him into the pit, verse 3, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. 
at the end of a thousand years, a time of righteousness, a time of justice, a time of peace and prosperity where the King of kings and Lord of lords is sitting on His rightful throne and Satan is bound, Satan is loose. During the course of this thousand years, these natural-born humans who are still in the flesh, not their glorified bodies, still have the capacity, not the glorified bodies, but the natural men and women still have the capacity to be given in marriage and to have children. That's a thousand years, a long time to have children. But all those children born to those who still have this natural body and sin of the flesh are born in sin, for an Adam, sin is passed on to all mankind. There must be a judgment then, not for those who have their glorified bodies, but for those who still have sin in the flesh and all of those born in sin about their obedience or the lack thereof. Now, you would think that this would be a small group because, after all, what a, what a glorious, glorious time. They've been living in the kingdom and life has been good and death has been minimized and, and this glorious blessing. Verse 7 of chapter 20, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations the spiritual warfare at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? They've survived a time of prosperity and blessing. They're able to see the King of kings and Lord of lords. They have, they have taken part in the glorious uh, millennial kingdom, and yet that sin in their flesh is still so dominant, then the great majority of them rebel against the king at the end of the millennial kingdom. Again, do we really have a very good grasp on how God looks at sin? I don't think we even scratch the surface. These are natural people, sin in the flesh, whether they die or not, I don't know, but there's generations born, and when given the opportunity to follow Satan or the king that they have been a part of his kingdom for all of these years, they, they choose the devil. And they come into judgment, and that judgment, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, that we were tormented day and night forever and forever. Now, at the same time, there's a resurrection that had to take place at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. It was a resurrection of the martyred saints. It was a resurrection of the Old Testament saints. It was accompanied by the church, the bride of, the bride of Christ. It seems like when the Bible speaks of resurrection, and we don't have time to delve into this, so I'm not even going to try, but in verse 4 through 6, if you want to read through that uh, this week at home, it speaks of a resurrection. It seems to be that this resurrection takes place in a couple of different phases, because there's the first resurrection, the first fruit of resurrection, that'd be our Savior, of course, right? <laughs> but there's also a, 
a second resurrection after the resurrection of Christ, and that's already taken place seven years prior. That's the resurrection of church-age saints who died and were, were made alive now. They're caught up together in, in the clouds. Now, just before the millennial kingdom, we have the resurrection of Old Testament saints and the martyred saints. There's another resurrection, and then there's a final resurrection, and that is the resurrection of all the unbelievers of all the ages, and they are resurrected to face the great white throne judgment of God. So, when we read of, of a singular resurrection in various texts, you have to understand the timing of all of those resurrections, and, and the people involved in those resurrections, uh, they're not all resurrected at, at once. Um, We'll explain it the best we can uh, next time we're together. And then, of course, they're all invited to uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be this glorious reception because of what Jesus Christ has done of all people of all ages um, who who, who found salvation uh, in in this millennial kingdom. There's, There's going to be this amazing supper. It is different than the supper that is spoken of in the book of Revelation, and that is the supper of the devouring of the flesh of all the unbelievers killed at Armageddon. So, you really have to be careful with the language, or you can be a little bit confused and mixed up for all of this. So, next week, we'll deal with the resurrection, we'll deal with the marriage supper, and then we'll move from there uh, after reflecting on the resurrection of Old Testament and tribulation saints. So, we'll move from there and take a look at the millennial kingdom. Um, a kingdom that lasts for a thousand years, and it's a kingdom of justice and obedience and righteousness and, 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 and blessing um, that culminates, of course, in, in a final rebellion of Satan. So, here we are. We're at the end of the millennial kingdom. Satan has been loosed. Satan deceives many they rebel against God. They are immediately judged by God. They are sent to their eternal destiny, this, this ever-burning lake, this bottomless pit. And then the final resurrection takes place of the unredeemed of all ages as God uh, takes them to what we call this, this great white throne judgment where they are cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And as, as that separation takes place, it is revealed to the recipients of the letter, uh, the final resting place of the unredeemed and the final resting place of the redeemed. And then John says, this, this, is, this is what it means. This, this is why it matters. So, as this all begins to unfold, we've, we've gone from the rapture of the church, the resurrection of saints, um, church saints, martyr tribulation saints. Old Testament saints, now we're gone to the end of the tribulation, the final judgment, at least earthly judgment, where they're destroyed for their rebellion against God. Um, the resurrection of all of those people, even those just killed, and we are approaching the final judgment of God, the great white throne judgment, and we'll pick up on that next time we get together. Again, fast and furious, we covered a thousand years in 40 minutes. Um, but we just kind of highlighted some of the things that are taking place. Remember where we started. This isn't about getting this right in all of its detail. 
It's about being reminded of the glorious grace of God in Jesus Christ to instill in us godly living, to encourage us to reach our world before it's too late with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to stir all of us in the depths of our being and the depths of our soul with the notion that Jesus is coming again. And it's only that notion that sustains you in the times of persecution that Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter 4. You see how this all kind of fits together? It all works together for the glory of God. Make no mistake about it. When Jesus said it was finished, it was finished. All the fighting wasn't done, but it was finished. It was finished. It was finished. Take comfort in that. Father, bless us for the time spent together. Release us from the need to know because we can't. Help us to do the best we can with the Scripture. But as Peter reminded his recipients in 1 Peter chapter 4, Remind us of the suffering of our Savior, the price that was paid, the impact of that on all who would believe, and find us faithful in our living, in our lifestyle, in our speech, in our faithfulness taking the gospel to every creature that some might be saved for the glory of that King. May we not miss the ultimate realities of the unfolding future. And may we be committed to the will of God, not our own passions, the will of God, until such time that we hear the sound of the trumpet, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll see you next week until, unless we hear the sound of the trumpet. Then I'll see you somewhere else, okay? <laughs>